This week I came across a study uh, from the Bipartisan Urban Institute, and it was a study on Social Security, taxes, and benefits. And so the way the study ran, let me just share uh, one of the findings with you. Imagine that we take a couple in our minds, uh, both husband and wife born in 1945, and imagine that that couple, just one of them uh, was the primary uh, worker, earner throughout the uh, 65 or the 40 some years in which they work, whether it's the husband or the wife. The study estimates that if that couple continued to faithfully pay their social security tax up to the age of 65, and whichever one was the sort of earner was earning the average wage for Americans each year over that time from 1945, I think it's until like 2010. If that was the case, that couple would have paid into the Social Security Administration $345,000. It's a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of times of looking on your pay stub and seeing the letters FICA with some number after it and thinking to yourself, I could really use those dollars right now. Amen, Amen right? <laughs> a lot of times of thinking, well, we can't afford this and we can't afford that, and, but looking at that line and saying, if we could just have that money, think of what more we could do. Well, the study went on to say that that couple, uh, if we projected out how much they would receive back in benefits from the Social Security Administration. And again, this is just a projection. But by the end of both of their lives, the husband and the wife, it's estimated that they will have received back, that couple that paid in 345000 they will have received back in, med in, in benefits, Social Security and Medicare, $778,000. For the 345 that they put into the system. Now I know that just mentioning Social Security and this environment is going to raise a whole host of issues, but please don't miss the forest because of the trees. My point is simply this that even in this life, we sometimes see examples where if you and I will do faithfully what we've been asked to do, the way we've been asked to do it, even though it's a sacrifice, even though it's difficult, there will come a point in which the reward we receive far outweighs the sacrifice that we put in. And if it's possible that we can see an example like that in a fallen, sinful kingdom like America, how much more is it true of God's coming kingdom? That the sacrifices that we put in day after day, week after week, year after year, looking at our pay stubs or the stubs of the time that we spend in our life thinking, if I could just have that back, I could do so many more things. But faithfully putting in to God's kingdom, how much more will that day come in which we say, Man, that was a great choice. That's what we want to talk about this morning. We're in week two 
of a four-week series at the end of Isaiah talking about the end times, what is coming in the future. Last week, we looked at the framework uh, that we're given in the scriptures, and we talked about the fact that there are really three things that are coming that we want to understand. The first is Jesus' return to the earth. That's what we're waiting for. He ascended to heaven, but is promised to come back just as he left. The second thing will come after he returns, he will set up a millennial kingdom, meaning a thousand year reign of Jesus on this earth. Jesus seated in Jerusalem, reigning over this planet, this earth, the way that it is, but on its way towards getting a lot better. And then the third thing is, after that comes the eternal state. What we think of when we think of the new heavens and the new earth, the idea of spending eternity in heaven with God. And last week we laid out the framework, Jesus returns, thousand year reign of Jesus on this earth, new heavens and new earth, the eternal state. What we want to do this week is understand a little bit more about that middle piece, the millennial kingdom, and in specific to understand how what we're doing now before Jesus returns will affect what we will be doing when Jesus returns in that thousand-year kingdom. You with me? So what I'd like you to do is take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 607. Isaiah 60, page 607. Last week we were reminded that because Isaiah is prophecy and because it's also poetry, when it talks about the future, what you get in Isaiah is beautiful language that sometimes we need to go to other passages of Scripture to understand with more clarity the beautiful language that we're experiencing. So what we're going to do this morning is look at just a couple of passages in Isaiah and get a flavor for what will happen when Christ returns and how the work we're putting in now will be rewarded then. And then we're going to turn to a New Testament passage which makes more clear what it is that we're hearing in Isaiah. So we start in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 21 and 22. Again, this is speaking of the future, not just future from Isaiah's time, but future from our time as well, about the return of Jesus. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord, in its time I will do this swiftly. Again, this is another one of those passages in the Old Testament that is too good to be speaking of now, but doesn't quite sound like it's speaking about eternity. And what we understand is these verses are speaking about that thousand-year kingdom on the earth. 
And when Jesus returns, he says that he will be governing and ruling over this earth, and the smallest will become like a thousand, the least like a mighty nation. Turn over to chapter 62. Verses 11 and 12. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. This is about Jesus' return. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. In Isaiah's painting of the future, he says, when Jesus returns, he's not coming empty-handed. He's coming with reward, and he's coming with recompense, that he is going to bring with him the rewards for those who have served him faithfully before his return. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you one more passage before we turn to the New Testament. This is from the book of Obadiah. And in Obadiah it says, the day of the Lord, that is talking about Jesus' return, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink, and it will be and be as if it had never been. But on Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath, the exiles from Jerusalem are in Sepharad, will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is a prophecy that when Jesus returns to this earth, there's still an earth to be run. There are regions of the earth that you and I would be able to recognize. The Negev, the Philistine areas, the mountains of Edom. And the promise is, is that people from Mount Zion, those who are believers in Jesus, will go and rule over these, people, over these places as part of the kingdom of God here on this earth. This is not describing heaven. It's describing Jesus' reign for a thousand years on this earth. And it's trying to give us an understanding that the things that we do now will be rewarded in Christ's kingdom when he comes. Now what the Old Testament paints in poetic, beautiful pictures, Jesus comes along in the New Testament and explains more clearly to us. So let's look at what he says will happen when he returns. Please turn now in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 19. 
Luke chapter 19. It's page 852. Luke 19. Let's look at verse 11 first, and then we'll look at the rest of the passage. While they were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, this verse is important because it gives us a context for why Jesus tells a parable. We're going to look at the parable in just a second. But he sets up for us, why is he telling this parable? Well, he's in Jerusalem. He's almost to Jerusalem. If you look over in chapter 19, kind of the next heading, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. The next event is the triumphal entry. A few days after that, Jesus will be crucified in Jerusalem. A few days, two days after that, three days after that, he will be raised from the dead. Then after that, he will ascend to heaven. And the point is, is that Jesus is the Messiah, meaning he is the long-awaited, the promised king of Israel, the one of whom all those prophecies in Obadiah and Isaiah and other prophecies in the Old Testament are about. And as the Messiah gets near to Jerusalem, which is Zion, which is the holy city, this is the place from which the king will rule over the whole earth, What's in the forefront of everybody's mind is, this is it. This is it. We're going to get these things fulfilled. We're going to go and we're going to rule over Edom and we're going to be in charge of the Philistines and we're going to be over all of the people of the earth and we're going to be rewarded and faithfulness is going to be honored. Everybody's thinking the Messiah is coming. The kingdom is coming. All that stuff is going to come in its fullness. And Jesus tells this parable to say, Not yet. There is an aspect of that Old Testament kingdom, prophesied kingdom, that does come through the Spirit at Pentecost. But Jesus is also saying there is a fullness to that kingdom that will not happen when he gets to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and still hasn't happened to this day. It's coming in the future. And so Jesus tells this parable to help you and I understand how what we're doing now before he returns will impact what we will be doing after he returns. That's the context. Now listen to the parable, and then we'll unpack it. Verse 12. This is the story of the parable Jesus told. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. A mina is a coin. It represents about three months' wages. If you're looking for just a number to use for that, you can think of, say, like $10,000. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. 
Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they replied, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. All right, let's unpack the parable. First, we have the man of noble birth. He represents Jesus. He's going away to a distant country to be appointed king and then to return. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable because they think that his kingship on the earth is about to happen within just a few weeks. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem, crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven. That's the distant country. And in heaven, today, now, Jesus has been declared to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this parable is saying that king is going to return to this earth. And this is a story about what that king expects from you and from me while he's gone. He's talking about right now, in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and what will happen when he returns. That's what we're waiting for. Next up, we have these minas, these $10,000 gifts. Now, I need to say about this, some of you may hear this parable and think, I feel like I've heard something like that somewhere else in the Bible. There's another parable that's very similar called the parable of the talents. A talent is also an amount of money. That parable is similar but different in one extremely important way. In the parable of the talents, three different people are given three different amounts to invest. One's given five talents, another one's given two talents, and one is given one talent. And the purpose of that parable is to acknowledge that all of us have different things we've been given by God. Different spiritual gifts, different lengths of years on the earth, different backgrounds, different ways in which we've experienced sin, different intellectual capacity, different financial resources, different opportunities. And that parable is meant to tell us God understands that. And God sees that every one of us has different things we've been entrusted by God to serve him with. This parable 
everybody gets the same thing. It's a slightly different parable. All 10 people get $10,000. And this is the counterbalance to that parable to say, while it's true that we all have different things, from another perspective, every single one of us has some things that are exactly the same. If you are a believer in Jesus, you and I both have the exact same Holy Spirit. You don't have more, I don't have more. Every single person has been given the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us who are believers in Jesus have been justified in the exact same way. We all have the same access to the Father. Your sins are forgiven the same way my sins are forgiven. I don't have any sins on my account that Jesus can't cover. You don't have any sins on your account that Jesus can't cover. Each one of us has been given just one life to live. Maybe different links, but it's one life. Each one of us has been given assignments by God, good works that we were created to do. They may be different, but it's true that God has created things for every one of us to do. And so this parable is emphasizing that everybody who is a believer in Jesus has some similar things that have been entrusted to us. And when Jesus returns, he's going to ask us, what did you do with the spirit I gave you? What did you do with the life I entrusted to you? What did you do with the assignments I assigned to you? And so the minas represent those things that all of us have in common. Life, salvation, the spirit, gifts, assignments, whatever they may be. Verse 14, there's a group of people called the subjects. They also show up in verse 27. The subjects are those who are not Christians. Do you hear? They do not want this man to be our king. Okay? These are people who are rejecting the lordship of Christ. And they represent those who are not believers in Jesus. Now let me say, I recognize there are some here who may be in that position. Please hear the very sober warning that Jesus is giving in this passage. Verse 14, we don't want this man to be our king. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. The point is, Jesus' kingship is not up for vote. It's not majority rule. It's not if there's enough Christians on this world that he'll become king. He is in heaven right now, having been declared to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if not a single person on this earth acknowledges it, that doesn't change the fact that he's king. Now I understand you can't see him as king now. He says you won't be able to. And I'm telling you, you are free to live your life however you want. You are free to be able to say, I don't want him to be king. You can decide you want to be king. You can decide you can do with your life whatever you want to do. You can ignore him. But I'm trying to tell you as kindly as I can, there is coming a day when he will return as king. And on that day, verse 27, bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. On that day, it will be too late. You have plenty of time while he's gone. 
to acknowledge by faith that he's king. But when he returns, it is too late. So please hear the very sober warning of Jesus. If you do not accept him as king, when he returns, he's going to establish a kingdom and you will be shut out from that kingdom. Why not accept him now? He is coming to set up a kingdom. The next group are the servants. The servants are different than the subjects. The subjects are not believers in Jesus. The servants are. If you have accepted Jesus as Lord, you're one of the servants. Now we got to figure out which one are we. The first servant takes his $10,000 and he makes 100000 out of that 10000 When Jesus returns, he says, verse 17, well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, what's the next phrase say? Take charge of 10 cities. Now, before when you heard this parable, you may have thought, take charge of 10 cities, what does that mean? Well, in light of Isaiah, and in light of Obadiah, in light of the things we're teaching you about the fact that Jesus is going to return and establish a thousand-year kingdom on this earth, hopefully now we can understand there are cities on this earth, and those cities need to be ruled and governed. Jesus will be king in the king city, which is Jerusalem, but there's a lot more cities, there's a lot more countries, there's a lot more places, the Negev, the mountains of Edom, the places of the Philistines, the places in Michigan, in America, in Canada, in Mexico, South America, in Asia. There are cities all over the world that need to be run. When Jesus returns as king, he looks to say, who was faithful to do what I asked them to do while I was gone, you did, you get to be in charge of 10 cities, meaning your role for a thousand years in the kingdom is dependent on how you and I do with the gifts God gave us in the here and now. And this first servant, he hits it out of the park. 10,000, 10 times as much, the king returns and says, 10 cities. Second servant. Verse 18, sir, your miners earned five more. 10,000, I made 50,000. Both started with the same amount. I made 50,000. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Now, what's interesting to me about this is he's not commended as strongly as the first one. You see that? There aren't necessarily the same level of words of praise. He also gets proportionally less. You got five times as much, five cities. Ten cities for him, five cities for you. On the other hand, all he did was turn $10,000 into $50,000, and for a thousand years he's going to reign over five cities? This is still a pretty great reward. This is still a pretty great thing. For a thousand years, he's going to sit there and think, yeah, that was a good investment. (laughs) That was a good investment. There is, however, this third servant. And when Jesus returns, the third servant says, I didn't do anything with the money you gave me. Here it is back. Jesus' response to this person is angry. I judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. 
Now, I want to say a few things about this servant. First of all, he's a servant and not a subject, meaning he is not cast out of the kingdom. His eternal destiny is not at stake here. Because he, by faith, accepted Jesus as king, even though he didn't do anything with his life, he's still allowed into the kingdom. He is not one of the subjects. He's a Christian. And if you know somebody, if you are the person who has accepted Jesus as king by faith and does not seem to be living out their life, there is coming a day in which they're going to have to give an account. But if by faith you have accepted Christ, you have eternal life. Jesus' sacrifice will cover all your sins. Having said that, let me just say that servant number three, this is not a good day for him. And this is a sober warning to all of us who think we can game the system. I know the thinking because I've thought it myself. And the thinking goes something like this. I need to believe in Jesus for eternal life? Okay, I do, I believe, I believe in Jesus. But Jesus is a forgiving God. Jesus will forgive all my sins. There's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no regret in heaven. I can live the way I want now. When Jesus returns, I just simply say that I'm sorry, forgiven for all those things, and I get the life I want now, and heaven just the way I want it, it's a win-win. You may not admit to have thinking that. I will admit to have thought that. This parable says we are fooling ourselves. When Jesus returns, we will be asked to give an account for how we lived our lives on this earth with the things he gave us. And if we have not been faithful, he will be angry. This man does enter the kingdom. He gets no words of commendation. He gets no cities to rule over. And the $10,000 that he did have is taken and given to the first guy. And... Please take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt because I don't know exactly how this works itself out. But please understand, last week, when we talked about no crying, no pain, no regret, no more, the old things are passed away, remember that is a promise that is made of the eternal state, not of the thousand-year kingdom on earth. I don't know exactly how that works itself out, but I promise you, If you and I think we can game the system, if you and I think we're free to live our lives however we want to live them now, and when Jesus returns, all's forgiven, all's fine, all's well, he told this parable to tell us it doesn't work that way. Please, pay attention. There is a sober warning in here. There's also a word of encouragement. And that is, if you're one of the first two servants, man, when Jesus returns, that is going to be a good day. And so let me offer you three words of encouragement. As we think about this millennial kingdom, ruling over cities, reigning with Christ, being priests of our God and of his Christ, three words of encouragement. The first has to do with fear. 
See, fear is what kept that third servant from doing anything. We know this, don't we? Fear is immobilizing. He says he's afraid of Jesus, but that's just a bluff. He's afraid of failure. I know that fear. He's afraid of missing out. That if he spends his time investing Jesus' money, he's going to miss out on some of the fun in life. He's afraid of suffering. He's afraid of sacrifice. He's afraid that if he serves God, God might ask him, which he will, to do something hard that stretches him, that's difficult. And it's fear that immobilizes him so that he does nothing. He just holds on to what he has and doesn't do anything with it. This is the danger for you and I today to let fear of all those things, fear of what others will think of us, fear of our own inabilities, fear of whatever it may be to immobilize us. We can say, well, we're, we respect God. We're afraid to do anything that might mess up and God might be angry with us. That's what this guy is saying. But Jesus calls his bluff and says, look, if you really feared me, you would have done what I told you to do. And this is the word of encouragement. True fear will motivate you to do what God told you to do, which will rescue you, listen, to, from fear. You and I don't have to be afraid that our sacrifice is going unnoticed. You and I don't have to be afraid that when the world tells us we're unimportant, that God thinks the same thing. He doesn't. This parable tells us you don't have to be afraid that if you've been faithful and you've done what God asked you to do, you will be rewarded. Your work is not in vain in the kingdom of God. Your sacrifices and your sufferings will be rewarded far exceeding the part we put in. Second word, commitment. I told you the story about the couple who paid their social security tax every paycheck. And I'm sure for years and years they thought, man, if we could just have that money back. But the faithfulness to keep doing it over and over again, when retirement came, they got far more out than they put in. The same is true, but more so in the kingdom of God. I mean, listen, the easiest application of this passage, Jesus gave those guys money, they invested their money. God's given us money, invest your money. If you faithfully, regularly give to God's work at the church, if you give to the poor, if you do it every week, even though when you look at your budget, you think if I could just have that money back, think how much more fun things I could do. If you faithfully, consistently do it, if you commit to give, when Jesus returns, you will realize he has given me far more in response to the little bit I gave him. Commit to serve. Week after week, get involved. Commit to pray. If you're a single mom, commit to raise your children in the power of the Spirit. And even though it's incredibly difficult and you feel like you're not going to make it, you simply make the commitment, I'm going to just keep trying. If you struggle with sexual temptation, for example, commit to keep fighting against it. If you're sick, you commit to keep trying to praise the Lord in the midst of your suffering and in your sickness. And the promise of Jesus is, if you and I commit and are faithful, when he returns, we will think, man, that was a great choice. Your commitment will not go unrewarded. Be encouraged. Third and final word is power. It's easy to think, well, but 
I don't have tons of education in this kind of stuff. Or I'm 10 years old, what am I supposed to do? Or you don't know all the difficult things that I got going on in my life. Or you don't know the background that I had or the spiritual wounds or all those things. True, I don't, God does. And we got the parable of the talents to recognize that he does take all that into account. But please hear this parable. If I was going to pick one thing that that minor represents, it would be this. The Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have the infinite, eternal, all-powerful God dwelling within you. You have all the guidance, all the conviction, all the energy, all the miraculous power, all the insight, all the understanding, all the gifts that you need to set this world on fire. And the only thing that's stopping you is you. God has given to each one of us his spirit. And through that spirit, we can change the world. When Jesus returns, he's going to say, what did you do with the spirit of God that I gave to you? And the fear is I could never do enough. Here's the answer. You simply let the spirit lead. Let the spirit do the work. I love this passage in Haggai too. The people in Haggai are asked to do a task that's way beyond them. And so God comes and says, but be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not be afraid. You and I have everything that we need to turn that one mina into 10, or 50, or 100. The spirit of the living God. doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your background. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for two days. You have the spirit of God. Now all this conversation about what we do now, being rewarded when Christ returns, the sacrifices that we make over 70 or 80 years now, being rewarded over a thousand years, begs the obvious question. How do we balance the needs of this time with what is coming? How do we make sure we take care of the stuff now and invest in the kingdom that's coming? My way of closing, let me let Jesus himself answer that question. Turn back to Luke chapter 12. You got money to invest? How do you know if you're supposed to invest it now? or in kingdom stuff. You got time you want to spend? Are you supposed to spend it on things now or on kingdom stuff? Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? 
Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagans run after, the pagan world runs after such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." If your primary concern is how do I make sure that things in this life go the way I want them to go, you will fail at this life and when the kingdom comes. If your primary concern is how do I be faithful with the things God's given me to do so that the kingdom is I am rewarded in the way that I want to be rewarded, God will take care of that and this life at the same time. So I want to leave you with this. For those of you who are not yet believers in Jesus, please hear the invitation. He's away getting a kingdom. He's going to return with that kingdom. It will be a worldwide kingdom. If you do not accept him as king now, there will be no opportunity when he returns. But if today by faith you acknowledge him as king, you can take your place in that kingdom that's coming. For those who are here who have accepted Jesus by faith but are wasting their lives frittering it away on pleasures of this life, please hear the sober warning. The day is coming and you will regret it. I don't know how else to say it except that you will regret it. And for those who are trying their best, continuing to fight against temptation, continuing to get back up after we fall, continuing to try to serve, continuing to try to give, continuing to try to do these things. When we fall into a pit, when we slide backwards, when we get into a complacency, continuing to try to keep taking steps forward. Please hear the word of encouragement. When Jesus returns, he will not come empty-handed. And he will come with rewards for you, for your efforts, that will far exceed anything that you put in in this life. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, help us to hear your words. Teach us your ways. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to obey. God, may the truth of your word set us free. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.